Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzel, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Inflation easing, China reopening, and Africa waiting. But all anyone can talk about is Samuel Bankman-Fried. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week's special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on easing inflation and whether we're on our way to that soft landing. The chairman is in about the right place. I think we are in better shape uh, than I thought we were. And Rick Reeder of BlackRock on the historic opportunity he sees in fixed income. If I can lock in these yields, go a little bit longer without having to go out to 10s or 30s, that to me is the sweet spot today. news this week for Global Wall Street, but we found ourselves spending just about all of our time focused on FTX and its former CEO, Samuel Bankman-Fried, as its current CEO bluntly told Congress what had happened. This isn't uh, you know, sophisticated whatsoever. This is just plain old embezzlement. And some members of Congress, like Brad Sherman of California, said we should just do away with cryptocurrencies altogether. What does cryptocurrency have over the U.S. dollar or other major currencies? It's right there in the name. Crypto, hidden money. My goal is to say enough is enough. It's time to prohibit Americans from investing in crypto. President Biden convened a summit in Washington to deal with Africa, with Secretary of State Antony Blinken emphasizing cooperation. Partnership is at the heart of President Biden's strategy for Africa. Partnerships between the United States and African nations with the private sector 
and between our people. But Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group said that the United States has to work to catch up with China when it comes to Africa. The Chinese uh, invest a lot more. But the, the African governments want to see the money. They need the baseline infrastructure. And so far, the Chinese have done a lot more on the ground to invest. Secretary Granholm announced that the Department of Energy had made a major breakthrough in nuclear fusion. This demonstrates it can be done. That threshold being crossed allows them to start working on the things that ne are necessary to allow it to be modularized uh, and taken to commercial scale. And Elon Musk gave up his title as the world's richest man, at least for now. He's no longer the richest man in the world. If you look at Tesla stock specifically, their market value now falling below $500 billion. But for all the drama, the big news really came from the central banks, starting with the Federal Reserve. On Tuesday, the Fed got the good news that inflation was slowing faster than we had thought. Investors didn't think inflation was going to come down as fast as economists were forecasting, and now it's coming down even faster. And on Wednesday, the Fed responded by saying, well, not so fast. It's good, but not good enough to declare victory. The FOMC raised our policy interest rate by a half percentage point. We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. I wouldn't see us considering rate cuts until the committee is confident that inflation is moving down to 2% in a sustained way. And then on Thursday, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank raised their own rates, another 50 basis points each, with ECB President Christine Lagarde saying they won't be taking their foot off the brake anytime soon. We should expect to raise interest rates at a 50 basis point pace for a period of time. And the markets, well, as much as they were encouraged by those CPI numbers on Tuesday, they were just that disappointed by the Fed chair's reaction. As stocks were down again for the week, with the S&P 500 losing just over 2%, the Nasdaq off 2.7%. While the yield on the 10-year was down just over 9 basis points to end the week just under 3.5%. Take us through this combination of economic and market data. Welcome now Joanne Feeney, partner in Advisors Capital Management, and Sonal Desai, Franklin Templeton, CIO of Fixed Income. So, Joanne, let me start with you. Did I detect just a wee tension this week between, on the one hand, the markets and on the other, the Federal Reserve? Yeah, just a little bit, David. You know, we've seen this play before. The market gets all excited. They see a data point and they think, okay, the Fed's finally going to ease off or signal that it'll ease off. And, and then we get that bucket of cold water. Uh, it, the fact of the matter is there's just a lot of work for the Fed to do to get back to that 2% target. And, uh, you know, they're going to keep rates elevated and continue to raise uh, until they have a, a much clearer and broader signal. And one CPI print is not going to convince them that the hard work has, has been done. There's just too much in terms of labor shortages right now driving wage growth. Uh, for them to ease off on this uh, effort to constrain economic activity. So, Sanal, the Fed has been fairly explicit. Why doesn't the bond market believe it? So, you know, I think that it's a question of what you call credibility. Is it credibility? Does the Fed have credibility that it's going to fight inflation? Or is it more that the market does not believe the Fed has credibility to stick to its guns in terms of raising rates? They're not taking the Fed very seriously, right? We are looking at what markets are pricing, both in terms of uh, the peak Fed funds rate, which is not five, certainly not between five and 5.25, as the SEPs are describing, it's below. Didn't change after Chair Powell's uh, uh, Q&A. 
And furthermore, the market's still pricing and rate cuts by the end of next year. We're looking at 435 for Fed funds at the end of next year. So I think the Fed, is, the Fed has a problem. It's got its work cut out for it. Markets have been conditioned to actually not believe the Fed when it says it's going to be really tough. So, Joanne, given this uh, disagreement, if I can put it that way, what does an investor do? It does strike me that bonds are a lot more attractive at the end of the year than they were at the beginning. I think the yield was something like 1.8 at the beginning of the year, and we're up around 3.5 now. Yeah, there's no question that uh, finally uh, investors can look to bonds to really fill an important role in their portfolios. Not only are they getting decent income off the bonds, uh, and, and that's allowing them to build more balanced portfolios so that they can both stay in equities to some degree and hopefully get that long-term appreciation that they need. But now they're getting some decent income on the, on the fixed income side, which uh, is a relief. Right now, real yields are negative because inflation is running ahead. But when you look to the longer term out, you know, two, three, four years, those real yields now look uh, look positive and they're really going to help purchasing power for those investors going forward. So now there is a lot of volatility though in the bond market, yeah. is there not? There really is. There is a lot of volatility and honestly until we get to a stage where the market is market starts buying whatever it is the Fed is selling, I think we're going to keep seeing these moves which are remarkable. If you look at 10-year 10-year yields which which I think over the month of November went at one point from 425 all the way down and then back up We've seen around 70, 80 basis points of moves, up to 30 basis points in literally days, 20 basis points in the last few. You look at these, this level of volatility, it's almost too much, far too much. And as I look into next year, I think it's probably going to be a few months, at least maybe a quarter or two until we see the Fed having raised, before we see some reduction in volatility. Nonetheless, you know, uh, echoing what Joanne said, when you're getting yields uh, in areas such as high yield, for example, you're getting as much as 9 to 10% on low dollar price bonds, certainly there are specific bonds, specific areas which look attractive. But I don't think I would go wholesale into adding risk. It's actually quite a nice time to be low in duration and high in quality in the bond market. Well, let me pursue that if I could for a moment, Sanal. And mm. this is the end of the year, so we traditionally say, what's your conviction trade going into next year? What's your conviction trade given that volatility in the bond market? Oh, no, I think my conviction trade on fixed income overall is high. I think I like to stay, like I said, relatively short duration, high in quality. I do like investment grade. And I think fairly soon into the new year, we're going to start seeing very attractive opportunities in, within the first quarter or quarter and a half. We're going to see some good opportunities in riskier segments like high yield as well. Emerging markets look very attractive too. So, Joanne, what about you? Do you take your income by old dollar and put it into bonds right now rather than the stocks, given where bonds are? They're much more attractive than they were, as you said. You know, we've already seen that happen a little bit. But right now, uh, you know, it's not that the equity markets are particularly cheap. Uh, volatility has been high. Uh, the bond yields are certainly more attractive. So, again, a balanced strategy, you know, at, at 70, 30, 60, 40 can do a lot for uh, for clients. And so that incremental dollar really depends on the client's uh, horizon. Obviously, a shorter horizon client had better be more in bonds at this point, despite that bond volatility that we're seeing and likely to continue to see. And while the stock market isn't particularly cheap at roughly 18 times forward earnings and those earnings likely to come down some more, there are still some very attractively priced stocks out there 
conservative companies that pay a dividend, that offer dividends that go up year after year. And that's another way of creating income for for investors in the short term, even while um, equities remain a bit volatile. So if you can wait it out, you can get both the dividend income, perhaps well above the market average to ride this out, and then still be positioned to have a portfolio on the equity side that's going to to really help the portfolio appreciate over the next three to five years. Okay, so, so now one quick one to you. I know you're a fixed income, but do you think the equity markets have really taken into account the decline in earnings is coming? So, so from my equity colleagues, I hear that essentially we're not look. We haven't seen major earnings downgrades. Now, while I don't expect a major recession next year, some slowdown in the second half of next year is pretty much a given. So, not sure that uh, that earnings downgrades have been factored fully. Okay, thank you so very much to Sanal Desai of Franklin Temple and Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management. Coming up, we're going to talk with Rick Reeder of BlackRock about what has already been an eventful year for markets and why he sees an historic opportunity in fixed income. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. 2022 has been a year of change. Change in the Fed and other central banks pulling back support for the economy and the markets. Change in the stock markets as they adjust to the central banks. Change in the rate of inflation and the underlying economic growth. Take us through what we have seen so far this year and to look forward to what may come next year. Welcome back, Rick Reeder. He is BlackRock CIO of Global Fixed Income and head of Global Asset Allocation. Rick, welcome back. First of all, the big news on Global Wall Street this week was you got a promotion. You're on the Global Executive Committee oh, now for BlackRock. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Yeah, so, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. A lot more stripes and epaulets. So, so talk to us about the change we've seen, because there has been a lot. If you look back to where we were January 1 of this year, where we are now, it's really different. For example, from 0 to 3.75%, even higher than that, 4.25% on the Fed. 
pretty incredible. Actually, when you go through, I've been doing this almost 36 years, and you say, what were the years that were, you had this sort of change, 2008, maybe still the biggest, but this ranks right up there at the top. And think about, you know, we came into the year in March, the Fed was still doing QE, and had the funds rate at zero, and now we've priced the funds rate at about five as a terminal. I mean, that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary, and a year that you've never seen, nobody's ever seen, even in my long tenure in the industry, where the bond market and the stock market all traded down. So your hedges, how you did portfolio allocation, change of leadership in the UK and all of the pension system dy dynamic, the, a war that, you know, who thought that we'd go through a deglobalization process and, and the impact that has on inflation, impact on fuel costs, food costs. I mean, this is extraordinary. And this I mean, is before this you is get a, to China. It's, and by the way, I mean, think about that. And the emergence from COVID, not emergence from COVID. You know, now do we, we start to grow? I mean, it's, it is pretty extraordinary. It felt like five years wrapped into one. So the economy has absorbed a surprising amount, actually, if you think about what's happened here. Uh, can it absorb what's going on right now? I mean, what, what are your prospects for as a so-called soft landing at this point? So, David, I think people underestimate how flexible, adaptive, innovative, particularly the U.S. economy is harder in emerging markets. You saw a year where the dollar appreciated emerging markets come under stress. But I think people underestimate how darn flexible, and you're seeing it play out in the U.S. economy. Think about when we emerged from COVID, all of a sudden people needed a TV, electronics, furniture, massive goods, grow, and you saw jobs moving in the goods sector. Then people had, had already gotten what they needed to get. They didn't need another computer or TV. Now you shift to the service sector, growth in the service sector, and you're seeing jobs, leisure, restaurants, hospitality, healthcare, that are now, it's pretty extraordinary. So can the economy withstand this? Listen, this is a historic move up in interest rates, tightening of liquidity through the balance sheet channel. But yes, I think that, I think, you know, we've talked about on your show, I just don't know why soft landing is like landing the plane on a pin needle. <laughs> it's you have an economy, you have a savings rate that's still, that's still in good shape. Leverage in the system, I've gone through 2002, 2008, where you had too much leverage in the financial system, consumers, corporates. Leverage is in pretty good shape. So the economy has some, a series of buffers alongside of it. Listen, the economy slowing. Could we have a shallow recession? For sure. But I think people underestimate a developed economy, particularly like the U.S., has is much more reflexive than people give credit to. Rick, you said the economy's really resilient. How resilient are the markets? Because you mentioned one of the issues that we've talked about before, which is liquidity. A lot of liquidity coming out of the markets. Have the markets held up? Are they prepared for what comes next? So I'd say the markets are less adaptive and flexible. And you know, I've learned over my career, there's a cultural dynamic around markets. People don't like to lose money, but not in, of course they don't like to lose money, but it's not symmetric to making money. I've always found this, markets go down five times faster than they go up. People like to protect what they've made and don't like to lose money. And when people think the prospects that they could lose more money, markets go down even faster. And it's pretty extraordinary what we witness that. And I've always found that people buy on up markets and sell on down markets because they just can't take the losing more money. Now, we're at a place today that if the Fed starts to come off the boil, which I think is the case, that now we're talking about rate volatility on the risk-free rate on interest rates, that's going to come down a lot. That gives, you know, when you, there are two components, particularly in fixed income, but any assets, the risk-free rate plus your risky rate. And we always think about whether it's debt, equity, where's my risk-free rate and where's my risky rate. But if your risk-free rate is moving all over the place and moving higher, you can't value any financial asset. That, if that stabilizes, risk premia, term premia comes down. And I think that's a really big deal. But 
are we going to have some vol into next year? Yes. I just think less than 22 if, if the Fed pauses. And by the way, the ECB starts to tone it back, Bank of England, et cetera. Well, you talk about the Fed coming off the boil. It looks like at least they're going to slow down the rate of increases. I'm not sure they're going to cut right away, exactly. but slow down the rate of increases. What do the economic numbers show us about that? Because we did get CPI numbers out this week that a lot of people reacted to very favorably. So it's really encouraging. By the way, we've had head fakes before. You know, we had it in the summer. We'd look like, okay, we're on the backside of it, and then all of a sudden it popped up again. I don't think it's over around, around what is elevated rates of inflation. You see it through wage stresses in the system. That being said, when we break down the component parts of inflation, you think about shelter, you think about food costs, used cars, supply chain, freight costs, they're all coming down. So you, get, you, you take some comfort in that we're on the backside of the elevated inflation. You know, we've run some numbers that even if inflation in most products stays elevated 4 to 5%, because of where energy is today, because of how much has come to worse, worse than where it was, because of house prices, shelter coming down, we still get in the high twos in inflation by the middle of the year. So you can live with that. And it's part of why I think the Fed, if the momentum is moving in that direction to a more normalized state, although elevated from history, Fed can pause. But you made a critical point. The markets are pricing the Fed's going to start easing in 23. I don't think that's right at all. Mm-hmm. I think the Fed's going to sit with this for a while in a restrictive policy. Maybe in 24, 25, you'll start, not maybe, I think in 24, 25, you'll start normalizing rates back down again. But we're not going there yet. So what is generational inflection point? You know, I mean, I, I've said this before, I'm, I'm, I've never been more excited coming into a year of 23. First of all, 22 wasn't a lot of fun in a lot of the markets. But now, when you put it in perspective where we are, for the last 10 years, the, the, the short end of the yield curve, the one to three year portion of the aggregate index, uh, the benchmark for fixed income, the average average yield was 1.10%, 1.18%. last three years is 1.10%. We're talking about four and a half now. Hmm. So you've got an opportunity where you can, in fixed income, you can buy yielding assets and you don't have to, to stress around illiquid, really deep down in leverage loans, really deep down in parts of emerging markets. You can build a portfolio, investment grade credit, some of the AAA parts of uh, credit card finance, uh, student loan finance, et cetera, and you can create six to six and a half. That is, we haven't seen that, gosh, it's been, I don't know, I don't, God, since the 80s, 90s, that you've seen those sort of yields by buying quality assets. David, that is a critical moment without taking a lot of interest rate risk, without taking a lot of beta risk, without taking a lot of convexity risk. And you think about what does that mean for equities? What does that mean for private equity? If you can get six-ish in high-quality assets, even a bit higher than that, it means, boy, you've got to get higher numbers, significantly higher to take liquidity risk, volatility risk, et cetera. It's a really big deal. Money's going to flow into fixed income as a result of it. I want to come back to equity and private equity. Before that, duration. Uh, is there a particular duration you're looking at that's more attractive? Yeah, I mean, I, so, you know, it, the, you know, obviously with the inversion of the yield curve, it's been, you can capture, and this is part of the beauty of it, you don't have to take a lot of interest rate risk. I mean, so many times in my career, you've got to, you know, hold, go out to the 10-year part or the 30-year part to get your yield. The curve's inverted. You can stay in the front end, if you believe, which I think is right, the Fed is going to pause, um, you get to a place where, gosh, I'm just going to try and clip that yield. What we've been doing, and I think we've been on talking about this show, that we've started stayed short. We've run a lot of cash this year. 
cash has been our best performing asset at a lot of, you think about the financial markets. Now we can go a little bit longer. Can you go out to three years, five years? Because the next evolution of the Fed will be easing. Again, I don't think it's till 23, 24, uh, till 24, 25. But if I can lock in these yields, go a little bit longer without having to go out to 10s or 30s, that to me is the sweet spot today. Rick, it's always such a treat you have in Wall Street Week. Thank Thanks, you so much sir. for being here. It's Rick Reeder of BlackRock. Coming up, we'll go through the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and I'm joined once again by our very special contributor to Wall Street Week. He is Mr. Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, welcome back. Uh, we have to talk about what happened this week. Uh, before we get to China, because last week you told us we were going to get to China. But first, what happened this week? We got the numbers in on CPI. We got retail sales numbers, and they tended to indicate that maybe inflation is not quite so bad. And then we heard from Chair Powell, and he got up and said he, his mind doesn't change. Was your mind changed? As you looked at these numbers, do you think maybe we're a little better shaped than we thought we were. Yeah, look, I think we are in better shape uh, than I thought we were. Uh, but I think Powell is, the chairman, is in about the right place. He's recognizing that we can't forecast the economy with precision. He's recognizing that it would be a terrible error if we were to fail to stop inflation in this episode. He's rejecting the talk about this being a moment to change the uh, inflation target. And he's maintaining uh, substantial uh, flexibility with uh, respect to the future. I think that is broadly uh, the right place for him to be. Uh, but I think we've got a very difficult uh, challenge ahead of us 
because I think the old adage about things taking longer to happen than you think they will, and then they happen faster than you thought they could, is really operating with respect to the forecasted uh, recession. It does look like it's pushed back a bit in time, but there are reasons to think, and this is what makes the chairman's job so hard, that the economy could have a kind of wily e. Coyote uh, moment, that recession-induced low earnings could pop into focus for stock market investors with adverse consequences for the market, that consumers could deplete their hoard of post-COVID uh, savings, that there's growing reason to think that many businesses are holding on to workers because in this labor-short economy, they're afraid that if they, if they fire them or they let them go, they won't be able to replace them. If that last thing is true, then it could all of a sudden change very dramatically if labor markets start uh, to loosen. So I think the broad picture is where it was. I, I've been gratified to see the ways in which the Fed has uh, caught up, but they've got very challenging uh, judgments uh, to make uh, going forward. And I think they're in broadly the right place. The last thing, though, I, I would say is, you know, everybody is getting enormously excited about whether the dot plot is calling for two increases from here or three increases uh, from here. The, this is kind of the narcissism of small differences. Compared to a year ago or a year and a half ago, when the debate was three percentage points, 300 basis points off of where, it, where things have turned out to be, we're now in a much narrower consensus around uh, judgments, and we need to appreciate uh, that. And it will be great if uh, the Fed turns out to be highly skillful. Uh, Larry, you promised last week we would get to China this week, so let's talk about China. Last week we saw the COVID zero policy sort of changing. This week we're starting to see at least anecdotally some of the consequences of that. The reports actually that a lot of China is shutting down. Some people are saying Beijing is like a ghost town. So what potential effect does that have on the rest of us, on the U.S. economy, on the global economy? What should our response be? It's extraordinary the way mandatory lockdowns are now giving way to voluntary lockdowns, with people staying home more than uh, they were a few weeks ago uh, in China. I think it's going to be a very challenging six weeks um, ahead of us uh, in China, and it will be fascinating to see what that means for uh, social stability, what kind of political ramifications uh, that has, and it's likely to be a very painful period uh, for China. Two things for us uh, to remember in the United States. First, even if this works out very badly in China, at the end of the day, the Chinese fatality rate from COVID will have been half 
of what it was in the United States. And so we need to resist any strong tendency to be to feeling highly superior uh, here. Second, uh, precisely because this is burning so out of control, my guess is that it's likely, like the fastest burning fires, to burn out more quickly rather than more slowly. Hmm. And so I think, ironically, a consequence of this is probably to lead to some upwards revision on Chinese economic forecasts beginning next spring. Hmm. And that's a factor tilting a little bit towards higher commodity prices and a little bit more inflationary pressure globally. But that's a highly uncertain uh, judgment. And of course, how all this plays in a broader social sense in China will be very, very important. Larry, last week you brought a longer view with respect to chat GBT, that uh, artificial intelligence, I will call it phenomenon right now. But this week we have yet another development, and that is fusion, where in that Lawrence Livermore lab out in Northern California, they actually managed to have a fusion reaction, where, as I understand it, they got more energy out than they put into it. So last week, when you were talking about AI, you said that had the potential to be as significant, perhaps, as fire or the wheel. Where does this rank? I think uh, not remotely comparable, uh, David, and of course I might well turn out to be wrong. Here's why. There's a fundamental difference between innovations that give mankind the capacity to do things they've never been able to do before, on the one hand, that's what AI is, and innovations that give mankind the ability to do what we've done before forever, cheaper. That's what fusion potentially uh, is. And the first, like fire and the wheel, are much more fundamental than the second. So I'm gratified by the second, but my read is that we've got a long, long way to go before this is available at uh, scale. And uh, that the reports uh, yesterday, reports this week, actually reminded me of all the stories you can read in the 1950s when the first nuclear or fission, fission uh, nuclear reactors were being built about how energy was going to no longer be metered because it was going to be so cheap to uh, produce. And it turned out that that didn't really work because there were capital costs, there were transmission, there were all kinds of things. My suspicion is that this is both less fundamental than something like AI or quantum computing and that it is ultimately uh, going to prove to be uh, quite a long way uh, off. But the only thing that's harder than forecasting inflation and unemployment <laughs> is forecasting the long run of uh, technology. So I sure hope it plays out to be even better uh, than that. Kudos to the researchers involved. And it certainly does bear out something we've said on this show, that if we ultimately succeed with respect to climate change, it's more likely to be because we find ways to produce clean energy cheap 
than it is because we uh, make uh, carbon extremely expensive. Thank you so much, Larry. Our special contributor, Larry Summers. Still to come, maybe we all could use a little more nuclear fusion in our lives, or at least someone to make sure the energy we're using is worth it. That's next on Wall Street Week. I'm Bloomberg. Finally, one more thought. Saving your energy. The world got some big news out of the Lawrence Livermore Labs in Northern California this week. For the first time ever, scientists have managed to create a nuclear fusion reaction that generated more energy than it consumed. A fusion reactor on the grid would be a complete game changer. And former EPA administrator Christine Todd Whitman says it may be a step towards saving the entire planet. This is a big step forward, and fusion can certainly offer a, a major, major tool in the efforts that we need to make to address the issue of climate change. But as exciting as saving the planet would be, it's also pretty remarkable when we find anything at all that gives us more than we put into it. Take, for example, the case of Elon Musk. And I don't mean just the money and effort he's putting into Twitter and whether that will ultimately be proved worth it. Remember all the energy his team put into showing us that the window on the Cybertruck just could not be broken. <laughs> well, Maybe that was a little too hard. That sure didn't give him more than he put into it. Or for that matter, those midterm elections. Sure, we managed to have a national election without an insurrection, which counts for something. Democracy won because we had massive turnout across the country. But it cost billions of dollars to do it. Now, don't get me wrong. Free and fair elections are the life's blood of a democracy. But it is not always clear that they generate more energy than they soak up. And this week, the same week we made nuclear fusion work, we had one of the biggest examples around of something soaking up a whole lot of energy and money and not coming close to returning what's being put in. I'm talking, of course, about Samuel Bankman Freed's FTX, backed by so many celebrities. Celebrities haven't been isolated or immune to the fallout. Details on the sports stars that have been entangled in the FTX mess. And attracting billions of dollars. More than a million customers had funds tied up, and more than $3 billion were owed to 50 creditors. But wait, there's more. Because mining for all that cryptocurrency not only uses time and money, it also is pretty much a black hole soaking up energy, making the entire planet worse off. Every transaction that you do takes more resources than the transaction you did before. It is fundamentally and intrinsically inefficient, and that is a huge um, energy cost. But maybe if we can get that fusion thing going, we can save the planet. Though it probably comes too late to save Mr. Bankman-Fried. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.